Welcome to another episode of Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and crime. I'm Trish, your cr- bartender for today. And I'm Sloan, your crime tender for today. <laughs> today we're going to be telling you the case of Amy Bishop. This is another, I guess you can call it a school shooting, sort of. Yes, It's a no. teacher sh- with other teachers situation. It takes place in Alabama, so... Uh, kind of local case for us and yeah we'll let sloan tell you all about it yeah and so grab your cocktail and buckle up for the hot mess express toot toot beep beep Welcome to another round of cocktails with your bartender, Trish. And today's drink, we don't really have a fancy name for it. Just calling it an Empress Watermelon Drink because it is Empress Gin. Simply watermelon is what we use, but I'm sure if you use just some sort of watermelon juice, you'll get the same effect. And then I used lime juice and simple syrup. And kind of just kind of mixed it all together. And to us, it tastes almost like a now and later. Which, it's kind of crazy. And because we used Empress Gin, it's a real pretty color. Because if you don't know, Empress Gin is the purple one that changes colors based on what you kind of mix in with it. So, what I did was I used just kind of a glass with ice in it and then I put two ounces of the empress gin in and then I did one ounce of lime juice you can use like lime juice straight from a lime you can we used the um roses lime juice because that's what we had on hand I I really don't think it's gonna matter either way But once you add that lime juice, you start seeing like a color change, which is also very cool. I love it. Um, And then for the simple syrup, I'm going to say maybe a half ounce of that. You don't really need a lot just because the watermelon juice is going to be sweet in itself. But just it helps kind of make it a little sweeter because if you don't know, gin is a little tangy. Um, and then I did four ounces of the Simply Watermelon. And like I said, you just kind of give it a swirl just to mix it up. And you just enjoy. And for someone that doesn't drink gin that often, that's basically what I've been drinking all day. So I'm clearly in love with it. <laughs> it is really good once you mix it all together. And like she said, it reminds us of a now and later. So it goes down really smooth. 10 out of 10 do recommend we will definitely have the recipe card and reels up as soon as we can for you and if you don't have empress gin i'm sure it'll taste fine with just any other type of gin it's just what we had on hand and if you do have the empress gin you'll see the pretty color changes yes 
vodka would even work well with this. Yes. So, once again, another versatile drink. We're just here to provide inspiration, and you can take what we give you and run with it. If you come up with an even better tasting recipe of using what we did, or even adding a little extra step, let us know. You can check all the recipe cards and that out on our socials. They're all tequila she wrote. If you have a little suggestion, you can comment under one of them, or you can send us an email at tequila she wrote at gmail.com. And with that being said, I guess we're going to kick you off to the episode. All right. So today I am telling you the story of Amy Bishop. She was a neurobiologist professor at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And Huntsville is in like North Alabama. And I want to say that's where they have like a NASA space camp or something like that around there. I think so. I'm pretty sure. I know we live in Alabama, but I'm from Mississippi. I'm from Ohio. (laughs) So we'll fill in the blanks the best we can. I can tell you it's in Alabama. You're welcome. (laughs) But anyways, so Amy Bishop sat down at a conference table just moments before the faculty meeting began. It was three o'clock on February 12th, 2010. 13 professors and staff members in the biology department had crowded into a windowless conference room on the third floor for the, the third floor of the Shelby Center for Science and Technology. The department chair, Gopi Padilla, handed out the printed agenda before sitting down next to Amy Bishop in a spot next to the door. Amy was 45 years old, described as having a long, pale face framed by dark hair that she wore in a page boy haircut, and her bangs slashed just above her small blue eyes. Amy was normally a vocal participant in these meetings, but today was different. Today, she appeared to be silent and brooding. There was an obvious explanation to most in the room. A year earlier, Amy was denied bid for tenure, and her desperate efforts over the past year to appeal the decision had been fruitless. When the semester ended, she knew her job would end as well. It didn't help Amy's mood that the agenda was mostly about the next semester. There was practically no reason for her to be sitting in on a meeting that did not concern her or her future. I mean, felt, but... It's still a part of your job, girlfriend. You still gotta show up. We've all had meetings and stuff that we would not want to, like, be a part of. Amen. A freaking man. <laughs> I'm gonna leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so a fellow professor, Deborah Moriarty, and she was, like I said, a fellow co-worker and a biochemist. She watched Amy from across the table. Deborah and Amy had become friends almost immediately after Amy moved to Huntsville in 2003 as an assistant professor. They often talked about their families. Amy had four children, four fairly young children. No, they weren't young at this point because one of them is attending Huntsville. That's my next sentence. I was getting ahead of myself, as I tend to do. But anyway, so Amy had four children. Her oldest was attending Huntsville, and Deborah had recently become a grandmother. Regardless of the friendship, Deborah was one of the many that had voted against Amy receiving tenure, and Amy knew it. They had remained cordial, even though Amy had confided in Deborah about her professional despair, saying that her life was over at this point. She's one of those people. 
Were you a cancer? Were you a cancer, Amy? I saw her birthday and I did not write it down for once. <laughs> Let's look this up. You look that up and I'll keep talking. <laughs> Deborah tried to reassure her friend that she would find another position that would be the perfect fit for her in her life. During the meeting, Deborah made a note to ask Amy how her search for a new job was going after the meeting was over. For 50 minutes, Amy sat there and said absolutely nothing. But as the meeting was concluding, she stood up and pulled a gun out of her purse, shot Gopi Padilla in the head. She fired again, hitting a department assistant, Stephanie, Stephanie Monte, Monticello. Next, Amy turned and shot Adriel Johnson, a cell biologist professor. At this point, everyone was screaming and trying to take cover as Amy blocked the only door out. Deborah watched in shock, not really registering what was happening until she saw Amy train the gun on her on the fourth colleague, Maria Raglan Davis, before shooting her too. Deborah then dove under the table, flung her arms around Amy's legs, looked up and screamed, Amy, don't do this. Think of my daughter. Think of my grandson. Amy looked down then, turned the gun on Deborah, pulled the pulled the gun, and clicked. Deborah stared at the gun in terror. Click again. The gun had jammed. Lucky Deborah. Right. Deborah seized the opportunity and crawled past Amy into the hallway. Amy followed her out, repeatedly squeezing the trigger. And as Amy tried to fix the gun, Deborah rushed back into the conference room as other colleagues barricaded the door shut. The room looked like a bomb had gone off. Six people had been shot in total, three of them fatally. And everything had happened in less than a minute. Amy then went downstairs to the women's restroom where she rinsed off the gun and stuffed it, along with her blood-stained plaid, bla plaid blazer, into a trash can. Then she walked into a lab and asked a student if she could borrow his cell phone, which she used to call her husband Jim, who often picked her up from class, telling him that she was done. When Amy left the Shelby Center... Through a loading dock in the back, a sheriff's deputy was waiting for her and apprehended her. Satellite news trucks began arriving to report on the tragedy. And it's kind of important to note at this time, 2010, mass shootings in America had nearly lost their capacity to shock us. At this point in February of 2010, there had already been 15 other shootings that year involving three or more victims. So, Amy Bishop's case was notable in that she did not fit in the profile of a mass shooter because she was A, a woman, fuck the patriarchy, like, what if we're just better at getting away with it? It's yeah. not that we're <laughs> committing less crimes, it's that we, you know what, keep your mouth shut, Sloan. Don't give away our secrets. <laughs> oh, and then Bambi is curious. We're innocent. Bambi is curious. Amy Bishop is a Taurus. <laughs> April 24th. That's your mama's birthday. I know. I was like, oh, mom. <laughs> that's your mama's birthday. It's the day after mine, but that's your mama's birthday. <laughs> At least I can say that. Eh. Oh, man. Heck no. <laughs> uh uh. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm going to say she's a psych a sociopath. Yeah. 
All right. Anyways, back to this shit. Da, da, da. So Amy Bishop's case was notable in that she did not fit in with the profile of a mass shooter because she was a woman. What is, uh, I already said that. And she had been a high achiever since her childhood. An accomplished violinist in her youth, she had received a PhD from Harvard. She had completed postdoctoral work at the Harvard School of Public Health. And her marriage appeared to be stable. She held no criminal record and no history of substance abuse. So from the outside looking in, she seems to be on the up and up, like working on her career. Nothing seems to be wrong. An average woman. Amy was appointed a lawyer by the court, Roy Miller, who from the beginning said, quote, this is not a whodunit. There are people in our community who are walking time bombs. They are hard, so hard to identify, end quote. And so I'm just curious what his defense was here. Right. But anyways, Amy had left nine witnesses to her crime. And the question was why for most people. The morning after Amy was taken into custody, the Huntsville Sheriff's Department received a phone call from a man named Paul Frazier. Paul was the chief of police in Braintree, Massachusetts. I'm going to mispronounce that and I apologize in advance. It's one of those words that I have a hard time with. Massachusetts. I'm focusing on it now, but I'm going to lose it here in a bit. But Braintree is a suburb of Boston where Amy had grown up. Paul said, quote, the woman you have in custody, I thought you'd want to know she shot and killed her brother back in 1986. Oh, quote. great. Awesome. Yeah. Yes. Let you have your little reaction there. But yes. So a little bit about the family. We have the mother who is Judy Sanborn Bishop from Exeter, New Hampshire, she is described as a gregarious woman with curly blonde mane and a, a great sense of humor. The father, he was born, I know I'm going to butcher this one too. He was born so, Sotir Papazogolos, and he joined the Air Force in 1954 and soon after changed his name to Sam Bishop. He was raised by his immigrant parents in a Greek enclave of Somerville, Massachusetts. And he's described as a taciturn, burly man with an old world reserve. So to me, that describes like every Greek man that is in media. Like, I don't really know any Greek people in person. Like I know, you know, the Americanized Greek people, but as far as anybody directly from Greece, what I associate in my head is like the sisterhood of the traveling pants. <laughs> right. <laughs> when she goes to Greece, like that's what I envision. So the two met at the New England School of Art in Boston. And in 1964, they moved to Iowa City, where Sam did graduate work in fine arts at the University of Iowa, where he would paint during the day and then he worked as a janitor at night. In 1965, Judy gave birth to Amy, and Amy is described as a bright, emphatic child who would arrange her toys in an elaborate formation as if they were perpetually on a parade. The family returned to Massachusetts, where Sam got a teaching job in the art department at Northeastern University. 
They settled into Braintree in 1968, and Seth was born later that year. Who would have thought that I would have messed up Seth over Massachusetts? (laughs) Anyways, Braintree is a middle-class suburb just south of Boston. It's at the edge of the Blue Hills, if you're familiar with the area. I'm not really, but if you are. During the post-war years, it became a beachhead for Irish and Italian families fleeing the city's grittier precincts. Braintree could see could seem clannish, but Judy's affability won people over. She got involved in civic life. She joined the town meeting, which was essentially like the local governing body of the little town. And she even drew editorial cartoons for the local paper. A friend of the family recalls Judy as the town spokesperson. She was that kind of person that you would call if you had a question. She would be the one to answer immediately, help you out any way she could. She could direct you to where you needed to be, who you needed to talk to, that sort of stuff. Amy, growing up, she was very asthmatic, and her child was childhood was filled with trips to the emergency room. Her early attraction to science was a byproduct of all of this, and that's when she resolved to find a cure for asthma. She started playing the violin in the third grade, and that's when Seth asked their parents if he could play too. It's been suggested by some that there was a rivalry between the siblings, and Amy definitely had a competitive streak. So that could be something, and that could be nothing. Whatever you want to think. But those that knew them at this time insist that the Bishop's siblings were close. One of Amy's friends in Braintree, Kathleen Oldham, said that she doted on her little brother And that they both loved music, they both loved science, and that Amy seemed to enjoy having someone younger to collaborate with. Amy, to this day, maintains that she and her brother always had a good relationship, and she reminisces about childhood excursions to the beach and spending time together at their grandmother's summer house in New Hampshire. Seth... The brother was described is described as being shy, but he was not nearly as aloof as his sister. He always plunged into new hobbies with enthusiasm. Same bud. His best friend Paul Agnew remembers that like Seth liked to find out how things worked. He had one of those brains. Once again, same dude. Um Seth really liked to ride his bike and he would often venture beyond Braintree with a pen and a map and he would chart ambitious expeditions throughout surrounding communities. Sometimes Judy would be driving miles away from their home and see a solitary rider pedaling up ahead, only to discover that it was her son. I think that sounds like one of my brothers. The author of the article that I got most of this information from, she spoke with some of Seth's childhood friends personally, And at the time of the article, these were like men in their 40s. And more than one of them started crying at the mention of Seth's name. They attested to his mischievous vitality and his self-possession. They remembered once in middle school, he was surrounded in the cafeteria by classmates who taunted him for carrying his violin and suggested mockingly that he should play it. Seth removed the violin from its case, raised his bow, and began to play beautifully until the bullies were cowed into silence that reminds me of like the devil went down to georgia (laughs) a little bit like (laughs) the little battle off with the violin anyways 
So also during Seth's senior year of high school, he began dating a boisterous junior named Melissa Tatro. Amy, who had moved into Boston to attend Northeastern University, did not seem to approve of her brother's relationship. Get the fuck over it. Let him be. Right. Let him make his own decisions. So one night in 1985, the bishops returned home from the wake of Sam's father, the children's grandfather, to find the curtains billowing out of an open first floor window. Thieves had ransacked their home while they were gone, stealing Ju Judy's wedding ring, a pair of silver cups commemorating the births of Seth and Amy, among other valuables. Judy wrote a letter to the newsletter begging for their valuables to be returned, while Sam went to the nearby town of Canton to, to purchase a 12-gauge shotgun. Judy and Amy both objected to having a gun in the home, but Sam was adamant and kept the, we the weapon in his bedroom closet, unloaded with shells on a nearby dresser. Over a year later, on December 6, 1986, the Braintree police received a frantic 911 call from Judy Bishop. Her daughter had shot her son, she said. Soon afterwards, she told the police that she had witnessed the whole thing and that it was all an accident. Are we buying it? Yeah, no. Are we buying that it's an accident, friends? Let me know what you think on our social media. I'll let you know what I think in a bit. So, the chief of the Braintree Police Department, John Vincent Polio, was an acquaintance of Judy Bishop's, as was everybody else and their mama in the town. Polio had quite the reputation of being a hard ass and putting an end to cor corruption in the police and justice department. Once in 1974, he received a tip that two of his own officers were planning to burglarize a local restaurant, the Mai Tai, and he arrested the men himself. But he refused to talk about Seth Bishop's death until the day he retired. Something smelling fishy a little bit. Yeah. On the morning of December 6th, 1986, Judy Bishop got up while her family was still asleep and drove to a nearby town, as she did most days, to care for an elderly horse. It later became a significant question when she returned back to the house, but she was definitely home by just after 2 p.m. to call the police. So the question there is, like, was she there to witness if there was previous altercations in the home that morning? Uh, so the police station is less than two miles from the Bishop house, so officers quickly arrived at the scene where Judy met them at the front door, her clothing spotted with blood. She directed them to the kitchen where Seth lay in a crimson slick on the floor, bleeding to death from a chest wound, and Amy, who was 21 at the time, was not there. Little chicken shit. As paramedics tried to revive her son, Judy spoke to the police. Seth had just returned home from the grocery store. Judy was in the kitchen with him when Amy came downstairs carrying Sam's shotgun. Judy told the officers, Amy said to me, I have a shell in the gun and I don't know how to unload it. I told Amy not to point the gun at anybody, but as Amy swung the weapon around to show it to her brother, the gun fired. The kitchen was small and Amy had been standing close to her brother, so the shot hit Seth point blank. When he collapsed, Judy called the police and Amy fled. And I repeat, chicken shit. Right? 
The officers put out a bulletin and Amy was picked up almost immediately outside an auto body shop in town. She was taken to the police station and interviewed. That morning, Amy had been alone in the house. She said she loaded the shotgun because she had been worried about robbers coming into the house. Seth had once taught her how to load the weapon, but not how to unload it. So she loaded several shells, but as she was trying to figure out how to remove them, she accidentally fired a shot, shattering a vanity mirror and blasting a hole in her bedroom wall. When she heard Seth come home, she went downstairs and asked him to help her unload it, at which point she turned and the shotgun went off. I'm not buying it. Yeah. Not at all. So Amy told the police that her father had left the house that morning after a family spat. Later in Sam's own interview with the police, he described it as a disagreement with Amy over a comment that she had made. He said that he like tripped over something in the hallway and he kind of got on to both of them about it, telling them to pick up their shit. And Amy gave him shit back. And so they proceeded to have a fight and he left the home. So Sam says that he left the house at around 1130 a.m. And he went on to browse for Christmas presents at a nearby mall. What man voluntarily shops? This one, I guess. Not my husband. I know that much. When he returned home, his street was filled with emergency lights. I've definitely come home to that scene before. <laughs> Sam hurried to the hospital and was there at 3.08 p.m. when Seth was pronounced dead. He was only 18 years old. That evening, Amy was released from the police station and Judy and Sam took her home. The Braintree Police Department released a statement shortly after saying, due to the highly emotional state of Amy Bishop, it had been it had generally been impossible to question her while she was at the Braintree Police Department, end quote. So they released her to the custody of her parents with further investigation to follow. Like what person under being, huh, let me rephrase that. What person as a suspect for murder is let go without an interview? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Under recognition. No. The only reason that that happened is because your mom is like the it woman of the town. The Karen of the town, basically. And she Karen your way out of it. Yeah. Anyways, after that special white privilege there. At the wake and funeral, friends and family recall Amy looking almost zombie-like. They reported that she was catatonic. And I don't know if that was like a show or if it does prove or kind of help prove that maybe this was an accident. I'm not, I'm not sure, but needed to mention it at least. A medical examiner ruled Seth's death as an accident pending a police investigation, and two days after the shooting, Chief Polio released a statement saying, every indication at this point in time leads us to believe it was an accidental shooting, which was supported by the DA's office and their investigation, too. So Amy was let off the hook. Amy says that she was horrified by her brother's death, but she insisted that, she, that it had been an accident. She said that nevertheless, though, she felt guilty. She still feels guilty. For months after the shooting, she crawled into bed with her parents. During the day, parent, her friends had to coax her to leave her, 
During the day, friends had to coax her to leave the house. And I think that one thing that is off here is like if this were to happen now, remember this happened in the 80s. If this were to happen now, she would have been in therapy, you know, if she would have just witnessed her brother being murdered or dying or, you know, whatever, she would be put into therapy, much less she is the main suspect if this is not an accident. Like, she she needed therapy and she never got the help that she needed at this point, in my opinion. Soon after, Amy returned to Northeastern University, but she continued to live at home in Braintree. After finishing classes for the day, she would go to Sam's office on campus and wait for him to drive her home. Eileen Sharkey, who was Sam's longtime secretary and friend of the family, said that Amy seemed to deflect her grief by becoming a dedicated student and earning excellent grades. Sam grew more somber and withdrawn. Meanwhile, Judy was focused on keeping the family going and saving Amy and her future. As Amy moved on with her life, graduating from Northeastern and enrolling in the Ph.D. program in genetics at Harvard, she seldom spoke of her brother to anyone. One person who attended Seth's wake was Jim Anderson, a student at Northeastern whom, Amy, whom Amy had met in a campus group devoted to Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games. After dating for a few years, Amy and Jim got married in 1989 in a simple ceremony at the same church where the bishops held Seth's wake. Fast forward to 1991, Amy gave birth to their first child, Lily, who was followed by two more daughters, Thea and Phaedra. Friends describe Amy as a loving, if high-strung mother. Felt like that would be me if I was a mother. That's why I don't want to be a mother. <laughs> <laughs> She was one of those moms that only bought org organic food. She encouraged her children to play instruments, and she always fretted over whether they were adequately challenged in school. Meanwhile, Amy found the Ph.D. program difficult and distinguished herself less at Harvard than she had at Northeastern. But in 1993, after revising her thesis, she was awarded a degree and began the first of several postdoctoral appointments. And I read in, an, in the article, like, way later on, somebody from Harvard, they were like, yeah, that was the biggest inside joke of all times. Amy should have never been given a degree from Harvard. So, basically, her persistence got her her degree at Harvard. Great. Awesome. Yeah. So, Jim, Amy, and the children lived in a cottage on Hollis Avenue close to her parents because Amy trusted only Judy to babysit the children. But in 1996, Sam and Judy sold the house to move 35 miles to the north to get away from the ghost of their family home. I'm surprised it took y'all that long. Right. In 2001, Amy had a baby boy who she named Seth. Few of her friends were aware of the significance of the name. That's the part that creeps me out. It's not that you named your your child after your sibling. Yeah. It's that she had a lot of friends that were pregnant around the same time. And whenever they were asked later on if they knew why the kid was named Seth, they were like, no. And they told them, like, the reporter would tell them. And they were like, can you imagine, you know, we had those talks whenever we were pregnant together. What, what are you thinking of naming your kid? What are you thinking of naming your kid? And her response was, Seth, because I like the name. <laughs> 
not Seth because that was my brother and I'm naming him to honor my brother just yeah. just because I like the name. But also then it brings up if she would have been like, you know, my brother and be like, oh, your brother, you have brother. Yeah, he died. Mm-hmm. How'd he die? Oh, I, I shot, shot him. him. Reminds me of Chicago. I, sh- I should have killed him. <laughs> I would have killed him. So another weird thing about this baby is that Seth 2.0 was born on what would have been Seth's one Seth 1.0's 33rd birthday. Okay. And I cannot tell if that was coincidence or if she like, you know, had a C-section to make sure that happened. I'm not really sure. I should have looked that up and I apologize. Anyways, So, one Saturday morning in 2002, Amy, Jim, and the children went for breakfast at a crowded IHOP in Peabody, Massachusetts. When they requested a booster seat for Seth, a waitress told them that the last one had just been given to another party. Amy protested, but we were here first! (laughs) She approached the offending customer and launched into an expletive-laced rant. I am Dr. Amy Bishop, she shrieked repeatedly according to a police report. And yes, there is a police report because when Amy was asked to leave by the manager, she punched that innocent customer in her head before leaving. Wow. Amy has anger issues. You could say that. Yeah. Amy was arrested, but the charges against her were dropped and never appeared on her permanent record. At the time, Amy was still doing postdoctoral research, and it was clear to those who knew her well that she was under a great deal of pressure to succeed in a demanding profession that can be inhospitable to women while also caring for four young children. Once again, boo frickety who. Like, you know, we, we all choose the life that we're living, so if you're doing this, it's because you've chosen to do it. Suck it up, buttercup. All right. Several people who know the family noted that Amy was the sole breadwinner. Jim never obtained an advanced degree and worked only sporadically, often in laboratory jobs that he secured through Amy's assistance. Amy once told her Amy once told one of her Alabama colleagues that her husband was, quote, too smart to work, end quote. And so on that note, why is he not being mom dad? So you have time to devote to your career. Like, if he's not at work building a career, he can be at home building the family. Yeah. When Amy accepted a tenure-track job there, and... When Amy accepted a tenure-track job to the University of Alabama, the family relocated in 2003. The move seemed to promise some financial stability. She and Jim began to collaborate on the invention of an automated cell incubator. David Williams, the president of the university, predicted that the device would change the way biological and medical research is conducted. But because Amy was pursuing patents rather than writing papers, her publication record was scant. She refused to heed to repeated warnings that failing to publish more could jeopardize her prospects for tenure. So not only is she upset that she didn't get tenure, but she's the freaking cause of her not getting tenure. 
She fared no better in the classroom as a teacher, where she would occasionally inform pupils that they were not as bright as their counterparts at Harvard. Not a great way to make your university look. No. She abruptly dismissed several graduate students from her lab and others requested to be transferred. Amy had always been anchored to her friends and family in Massachusetts, but as her career began to drift in Huntsville, she grew in she grew increasingly isolated and stopped returning their phone calls and emails. She was prone to erratic and at time bizarre behavior at yeah, at this time. That was a double sentence. That was horribly written. I do apologize. That's fine. In 2009, she published an article in the International Journal of General Medicine, an online publication widely regarded as a vanity press, and listed four co-authors. Do you want to guess who they are? <laughs> oh, I'm sure it's going to be disappointing. Jim, Lily, Thea, and Phaedra. Her three daughters and her husband. Jim later explained, we were going to do a lot of work side by side and bring the kids in on it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that spring, Amy's tenure was denied, and at least one member of her committee expressed a concern that she was crazy, saying that he first worried about her mental health, quote, five minutes after I met her, end quote. Ain't that the restaurant life, though? <laughs> I was about to say, I want a survey on how many people have said that about me. <laughs> That's the restaurant life where we're sitting there going, you hired this person? You hired this person. Yep. 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 Uh. So Amy went on to file a series of appeals and she eventually even hired a lawyer because she was not given her tenure. It's not guaranteed, bitch. No. <laughs> it's earned. Amy also began to fixate on what she considered to be the cautionary tale of Deg Douglas Prasher, a molecular biologist whose research funding dried up in 1992. He ultimately abandoned science, moved to Huntsville, and he drove a courtesy van for a local Toyota dealership. Then in 2008, two scientists with whom Douglas had collaborated with won the Nobel Prize on chemistry based on Douglas's research. Amy told her husband a few times that she was worried she might have a similar fate as Douglas Prasher. Uh, since childhood, Amy had suffered from severe allergies, which could manifest as hives or eczema. Eczema. I don't know why I said it like that. The first <laughs> eczema. In the months before the shootings in Alabama, Amy, Amy was under tremendous stress and began to hallucinate. Shortly after Seth's death, Amy says she started to hear voices, and since then, they had continued off and on, co coinciding occasionally with allergy attacks. So, to me, I'm like, do these things actually happen, or are these things that you're bringing up now that you're facing life in prison? Yeah. The it world may never know. One day, Amy drove to the university and parked in front of the administration building. While she was sitting in her car, she called the office of the president and announced her intention to come upstairs to discuss her case. She was told that President Williams would not meet with her and that she would not that she should not in, even enter the building. According to an affidavit written by Amy in prison, she then saw President Williams and the provost hurried hurriedly leaving the building escorted by police. Amy telephoned Deborah Moriarty 
telling her, they act like I'm going to walk in and shoot somebody. Well, you kind of did. Eventually. Not that day, but another day. Not long after Amy Bishop shot her colleagues in Huntsville, authorities in Massachusetts released decades-old documents about the death of her brother. So at this point, we find out that when Seth fell to the floor and Amy ran out of the kitchen, she left the house through the back door, taking the shotgun with her. She crossed Hollis Avenue and cut through a wooded area, emerging in an alley that dead-ended into the body shop of Dave Dinger Ford. Because it was a Saturday, the place was closed, but a few off-duty mechanics were hanging out there. And according to them, Amy came inside holding the shotgun, and she said that she needed a car and demanded that they turn over some keys. The men ran, and Amy was outside when a cop came across her. And we know what happened from there. When Amy arrived at the Braintree Police Station, she was taken to the booking room. Because pointing a loaded gun at anybody is grounds for a felony charge of assault, and brandishing a gun in front of a police officer is an affront to a law enforcement that is seldom taken lightly. So why was Amy Bishop let go that day? The police (laughs) chief had ordered her release. What? (laughs) Yep. Retired Captain Polio said that in his recollection... Seth and Amy had been horsing around with the family shotgun when it went off. That's the story he was told by Judy. He says that it was an outlandish he said that it was outlandish to suggest that there had been any sort of cover-up. Except there was. Yeah. And you had a part of it. Somebody that had such a reputation for being a hard ass. And you let a Karen get the best of you. Yep. So, after the Alabama shootings, the media initially portrayed her as an oddity, a nutty professor, if you will, whose actions were an extreme expression of the pressures of academic life. After the newly disclosed evidence was released about her brother, though, Amy was depicted as something more malevolent and familiar, the bad seed. Seth's death was only the first entry in a catalog of unheeded warnings. So, after Seth's stuff comes up, The episode at IHOP that I mentioned earlier is released to the press. And then there's another case in 1993 in which Amy and her husband had been questioned by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Amy's postdoctoral advisor at Harvard, with whom she had apparently had some dispute, received a suspicious package in the mail one day. (laughs) He opened it carefully and narrowly circumvented the trigger mechanism attached to a pair of six-inch pipe bombs. The case remains unsolved to this day, and charges were never brought against Amy or her husband, but they were both, they were both identified as suspects. <laughs> Their home was searched, but nothing was found. However, law enforcement interviews revealed that Amy and Jim had spoken to friends about how one might build a pipe bomb, and Amy had also once given her college friend a strange present. I am going to butcher the shit out of this. Oh, God. Go ahead and roast me. 10 pounds of potassium permanganate. Per, perman, permanganate. Per, per, <laughs> it's a big word for Elmo. <laughs> but it's something that can be used to make explosives. Yeah. In the weeks after the Alabama shooting, several former colleagues and neighbors came forward describing various altercations with Amy, mostly over trivial matters. So she seems like a pipe bomb waiting to go off. 
people kept sweeping her bad behavior under the rug, and now we're paying a tremendous price, one trustee of the University of Alabama said. Even Roy Miller, Amy's lawyer, believed that there was a telling pattern of violence and that this could have been stopped sooner. Yeah, don't say. (laughs) Right? On June 16th, 2010, Amy Bishop was indicted for the first-degree murder of her brother, and two days after the indictment was announced, Amy, while in jail in Alabama, popped the blade out of a safety razor and slashed her wrist. She collapsed in her cell, bleeding, and survived only because a prison guard discovered her. Another four minutes and she would have been dead. Yeah. After the court assigned Roy Miller to be Amy Bishop's lawyer, he spent 18 months preparing an insanity defense. (laughs) Amy had asked for the death penalty for herself. The alternative would likely be life without parole. And Amy, who was incarcerated at the county jail in Huntsville, would probably be transferred to the Julia Tutwiler Prison for Women, a notoriously brutal institution in central Alabama. There are a lot of complaints about, like, guard on on inmate uh, hostility and attacks and things like that. And her parents actually talked her out of claiming... uh, Her parents talked her out of pleading for the death penalty because they were like, you know, it does take several decades for the death penalty to be taken out. You're better off claiming not guilty for reason of insanity. So that's what she ends up doing. We'll get to that in a little bit, though. I jumped ahead of myself, as I tend to do. Amy says that though she is horrified by by what she calls the UAH incident, she has no memory of the killings. The Alabama case was further complicated by the fact that several of the people she shot had actually voted for her tenure. The bloodshed couldn't be explained simply as an act of vengeance. Any claims that she is being treated with the... Any. Amy claims that she is being treated with the antipsychotic Haldol and that she has paranoid schizophrenia, but her lawyer said that she had not received a definitive diagnosis. Yeah. Her trial was scheduled for September 24th of 2012, but two weeks before that date, Roy Miller approached the prosecution about the possibility of a deal. Amy was willing to plead guilty to capital murder in exchange for a commitment by by prosecutors that they would not seek the death penalty. She would spend the rest of her life in prison without the possibility of parole, and the prosecutors agreed to this deal. When a defendant pleads guilty in a capital murder case in Alabama, the state must present an abbreviated version of the evidence in court. As they did so, Amy sat quietly, clasping and unclasping her hands while the prosecution described her crimes. As photographs of her slaughtered colleagues were projected, she buried her head in her arms like a schoolchild. And when the judge asked Amy if she agreed to plead guilty and waive any right to appeal, she addressed the court for the first time and only time, saying in a soft voice, yes. So afterwards, Massachusetts decided to proceed with their capital murder charge, and ultimately Amy pled guilty to the char- to that charge too, because she just didn't, she was already going to spend her life in jail, yeah. like might as well. And ultimately Massachusetts agreed with her, saying that they weren't going to sentence her because the sentence that they would give her is the one that she's already serving in Alabama. Yeah. So it's pointless for them to extradite her to Massachusetts just to sentence her to life, just to send her back to Alabama for her to spend her like consecutive lives 
um, sentences here. Yeah. She's never going to make it to Massachusetts to serve time. So that is my case today about Amy Bishop. I did a great job with pronouncing Massachusetts the whole time, but I <laughs> fucked up some other words. It is what it is. I hope y'all enjoyed this case. And without further ado, we'll send you off to the last call. All right. On to the last call following um, that crazy case. I suddenly feel better about my mental health. (laughs) (laughs) I started researching it and I thought that we were just going to be talking about like the school shooting and the whole story ended up being something else completely. (laughs) Completely. Oh, but yes, that was uh, definitely something I didn't see coming. But before I jump into our funny last call, I do want to bring up, because I'm sure by this point it's become somewhat national news. I don't know. Alabama, like a lot of stuff that happens here, we we think it's national and it's like, oh, you guys don't know about that? No, this is like Dateline National. This yes. is definitely national. So, as you know, in Alabama, we had a capital murder suspect get broken out of jail by a, um, she was a correctional, correctional officer. officer. And that the suspect was Casey White and the corrections officer was Vicky White. They are unrelated. I know it's very confusing. They have the same last name, but we they're are in Alabama. <laughs> they're unrelated. And they have since been captured. Um he was caught in Indiana. I don't remember if she was also found in Indiana or if she was found somewhere else. I did not catch that detail. I do know that she has since passed away. She was found with a gunshot wound that they had. At first, they weren't sure if he had inflicted it or if she had. And they had determined that it was a self-inflicted gun wound. So, this is ongoing. Like, within, like, the past, like, hour or two, they've been slowly releasing information, so it's something we'll definitely look into. Maybe we'll make a little short case about, I don't know. But, we are aware of it, so if if you're listening and wondering why we're not talking about it, we do know. We do. We're just trying to wait on details. But, that being said, I want to get into our, one of our favorite go-tos, Florida Man. (laughs) And I had started this particular article a while ago because it's just a list of different Florida man things. And I I only got so far and there's just so many that are so good. (laughs) So we're going to jump back in with this and I'm going to kind of skip around just because some of them aren't as great as others. But the first one I'm going to read is labeled they don't need them anyway florida man leaves job at burger king steals all their nuggets because fuck it i mean if i was leaving burger king i would take all the tacos from taco bell so yeah i was leaving burger king i'd probably leave the nuggets i'd take the fries let's be honest i'm a potato yes (laughs) um Birds and the bees. 
Florida man climbs on playground equipment to tell children where babies come from. But I thought that's what we wanted. I thought we all wanted children to know that a, a, a baby comes from a man and a woman. And that's the way things should be. Lay barf. <laughs> Next one. Angriest birds. Florida man steals neighbor's peacock gets chased by angry birds. I will not fuck with no peacock. <laughs> Don't nope. do it. He should have stayed at school then. Florida man manages to misspell school on warning sign mm. twice. He literally spelled it S-C-O-H-O-L. You need to go back to S-C. <laughs> How did he spell it? S-C-O-H-O-L. <laughs> it's like, you need to go back. Somebody been drinking alcohol and thinking that's how everything's yeah. spelled. <laughs> uh, the monkey told him to do it. Florida man arrested for driving stolen vehicle while monkey clings to his chest. <laughs> oh, I remember reading this one. I didn't read it, but I remember what I was going through. Oh. Finding love in the most unexpected places. Florida man ripped urinal from restaurant bathroom wall. Mm -hmm. Ran away naked into woods. No. What would you do? That's not how you do it. <laughs> That's not how you do it. Uh, That's not the answer. <laughs> I was like, what would you do if you're at work and suddenly there's a naked man running through the restaurant holding I'd, a I'd leave. <laughs> I would leave. Don't get paid enough for this bullshit. No, I don't. <laughs> Two 13 an hour most shifts? No, I don't. Jimmy! <laughs> Jimmy, take care of my life. <laughs> oh my god. Next one. Hydration is key. Florida man pauses police chase to rehydrate with stolen Capri Sun. Says smoking crack makes him thirsty. <laughs> oh, drugs will make your brain rot out, kids. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, next one. Trick me once. Florida man gives police exonerating dash cam video following traffic incident. Accidentally includes video of him robbing beauty store. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't oh, do that, but I did do this. Oh man, I'm the worst about that. <laughs> I will tell on myself for anything. So just believe me whenever I say I did not do something because I will own up to it. <laughs> Dre, I didn't do that, but I did kill that. <laughs> yeah, there was this one time that... I was in the dish pit at work and somebody broke something or somebody threw something away. And I was like, all right, I did not do that thing right there, but I did mess that thing up over there. And our girl guy goes, you know what, officer? I didn't kill that man over there. I killed the man back there, but I didn't kill the man over there. <laughs> I was like, I would be smarter than that. Right. The body wouldn't be there to be found. <laughs> 
<laughs> Anything to escape vampires? Florida man says he danced on patrol car in order to escape vampires. The picture associated with this is literally a man in the middle of the day on top of, of a police cruiser in like a driveway. Sir, are you being chased by like the vampires in Twilight? Like, possibly. <laughs> Sorting your priorities. Here we go. This one, oh, this one made me chuckle. Florida man asked Trooper if he can leave scene of crash to get more meth. <laughs> uh, the little, like, comment underneath it says, Sure, buddy, we'll go with you. Lead us straight to your dealer. <laughs> Could you imagine if they let him go? And you showed up to your dealer's house with a police escort. You'd be like, the fuck, man? <laughs> uh, did it include, I shot the sheriff. Florida man can't produce driver's license for police. Shows them mixtape instead. I just want to know if, like, Florida makes your brain rot out. I, maybe. And is it a proximity thing? Are we close enough that we're in danger of this? <laughs> I think the last one I'm going to lead us with is called Perfect Date. Florida man drives date to sports bar on stolen Walmart mobility scooter. Keep it classy, Florida. I want Florida. one of those. <laughs> I want a mobility scooter. Uh... But Florida man, you are the, the gift that just keeps on giving. Right. I have not checked recently to see if there's any good ones that have come about, but I'm sure there are because Florida man is just. And there's also like the TikToks of uh, the one guy. He reminds me of meat. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he does With the, the flip phone. Yes, he does the only in Florida man. Glad I got that on a flip phone. <laughs> <laughs> He's, I, he's basically like the TikTok Florida man, and it's great. Yes. His are always so accurate and so funny. I love it. But with that being said, we're going to call it a day. Be sure to check us out on our socials. They are all tequila she wrote. I believe we are all up to date. On still Instagram. Work, I'm still, still working, working on, on Twitter, but like still working on TikTok. Yeah. We're still working on like Twitter and TikTok, but like Instagram, Facebook, those are all caught up. We also have our email that if you have any case suggestions, drink suggestions, just want to say hello, you can shoot us an email at tequilashiro at gmail.com. Um, we record and post every Tuesday and Friday. And we have our Patreon. The easiest way to find us there is patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote. For as little as two dollars a more month uh, <laughs> for as little as two dollars a month you can support two of your favorite bitches. With that you will get ad free episodes guaranteed an extra bonus episode every month as well. 
And as long as we can stay on top of it, hopefully early episode releases. And those will, it's just a day early, but it's still a little early if you're interested. And then from there, we have different tiers. So the more that you pay, the more you get back from us. If there's something that you think that we're missing over there that you would be willing to pay more for, let us know. But other than that, we have different bonus episodes. We have like a Ruining Paradise. We have a Taunted series, um, different things like that. There's also physical merchandise that comes with it, all that good stuff. So check us out over there if you are wanting a little bit more of Trish and Sloan. Yep. And until next time, thanks for riding the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep. Beep.